I'm Emily Botin. I'm an independent producer based in Brooklyn. I want to welcome you to Pitch Perfect, um, Air's regular huddle. It's been happening most years at Third Coast now, where we pull back the curtain on what happens in the editorial process. Over the course of the next hour, you probably know this by now, but uh, six producers will be pitching to three editors. Uh, obviously, this is not what normally happens. If you're a producer, you don't normally pitch to your editor in person. And if you're an editor, you don't uh, normally have to respond uh, immediately. So everyone's going a little bit out on a limb uh, on this. And I hope we can listen to them uh, supportively, knowing that uh, most of us would never do this. Um, and in that spirit, uh, yesterday people were quite nervous. So today I brought a bottle of wine. If anyone would like a little wine, I have for our six and our three panelists. We can have, it's only one bottle. I think this is fine. Um, and I want to thank AIR for convening this. Uh, AIR, as you've probably heard by now, is many different things. Uh, it produces events like this at Third Coast. We need nine, right? Well, we are eight right now. Oh, there's Mahi. Come sit down in the front. Um, it runs programs like Localore, which you probably heard about uh, at the uh, conference here. It represents the interests of producers across the system. It offers audio workshops. And of course, it also runs the source of the AIR Daily, which is this listserv, which where you can learn anything from, you know, what's the best microphone to use underwater to how to format some specific uh, sound card. How to dry out a microphone, how to dry out a microphone yeah. Um, Sue Shart is standing up. Aaron Mishkin, her colleague, you've maybe known them by now, but you should stop by the air table. If you stop by the air table this uh, weekend, you get a 20% discount on air membership. I've been a member since 2006. It's definitely worth it. Um, I think by now, all these editors have also have done one-on-one -on -one sessions over the weekend, so we really appreciate that time they've done. So now we're going to move on. This uh, session is a lot about timing. My main job is going to be watching the clock, so we are going to be moving fairly fast. Um, but what is pitching? Pitching is presenting your story in its best light. Pitching is getting to yes, getting to ideally on the air. You need to figure out the right balance of selling your story, but not yourself. Uh, figuring out how to stay noticed but not be annoying. Um, all of our pitchers here have done their homework. They read about the specific shows, what they are looking for uh, to try to craft a pitch that would match the show. We have three editors uh, this afternoon, and I'm going to ask them to say a little bit about uh, the show, or I guess the network, the networks, in fact, today that they work for. Um, Anna, do you want to start? Anna Sussman from Snap Judgment. Go Can you hear me now? Okay. Um, I'm Anna Sussman. I'm a producer with Snap Judgment. We are a first-person storytelling program. We tell stories from the first-person perspective for the most part. There are exceptions. Uh, it's event-based storytelling, so something has to happen. There has to be it has to be action-driven and plot-driven, and like you've heard probably throughout the whole weekend, a beginning, middle, and end, strong dramatic tension. Uh, we're on 217 stations now, uh, which is fun because we're new and growing. Uh, and I would say, actually, if you're pitching me, your best strategy is to be annoying, which I, I may regret saying that, but that's probably your best technique. Uh, and Anna herself has been uh, on the pitching side. I remember when we spoke, yes. you said when you were in print, you didn't think, you, you forced yourself to pitch 10 times? Yeah, I wouldn't give up on a story until I pitched it and had it rejected 10 times. And I almost never got to 10 rejections. Uh -huh. so, yeah. uh, Jeremy Skeet from the BBC, who just went swimming in the <laughs> lake. Do you want to tell us a little bit? Yeah, I had to wake myself up. Uh, my name is Jeremy Skeet. I work um, primarily for uh, BBC World Service, which is um, 
Well, it's a 24-hour sort of news-based network. Uh, and I think there's a, the import, it's got 40 million listeners around the world. It's, it's, um, it's big. And, but its audience is incredibly varied, as you can imagine. So um, the, sort of, the main audience is in America, but then we've sort of got a huge audience in Africa. So I sort of think when you're pitching, you have to be totally aware, for me, about the audience that you're pitching to. Uh, you know, it's, a lot of the audience is English as a second language. Um, does the story have resonance around the world? Um, so you sort of think about the audience. And then because it's a network, I think you've got to be really uh, sure about which programme. You know, there are 40 or 50 programmes on the network. So you really have to know your homework about, about how your idea fits fits the programme that you're making. But um, I'm looking forward to it. Jeremy, do you want to say a little bit just about the initiative that you're... Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, this year we started something called the Real America Project uh, in association with AIR, who um, helped us out a lot. I don't know if you might have seen it, and I know a couple of people here pitched to it. It was the idea that we wanted to... Quite often we parachute American, uh, British producers into America, and we sort of thought, well, hang on, there's a, a huge talent here. Let's hear from... American producers, let them make some material about the America that they live in. Um, so we started this project, uh, it was a trial project. We've got uh, four documentaries, we commissioned four documentaries from, of which three have gone out. Um, you can hear them on the BBC website if you search for a Real America. Uh, the Guardian newspaper just reviewed the series, which I thought was excellent, and the last, um, the last programme too, which was fantastic. They're all very, very varied and I can go into detail about them, but I'm pleased to announce that we're going to be doing it again next year in association with AIR. Um, the other things, we've got a new distributor, APM, who now distribute our material. So the programmes that have been made and the ones that we will commission will also be um, distributed by APM, so they'll get an American as well as a worldwide audience. So that will happen. Keep, keep a, AIR will tell you when that's happening. It's open to AIR members and AIR non-members, so you don't, it's open to anybody in, on, in America, but keep your uh, eyes open for emails, and that will probably be later in the year or the new year, um, but hear more details. And that is open to anybody, and I, last time we got about 150 pitches, but I, hopefully this time we'll get a lot more. Great. Um, Tom Cole is here from NPR, and I would say for a certain generation of uh, radio producer, there's probably the older than most people in this room. Um, Tom Cole, myself, I mean, I'm aging myself. Uh, Tom Cole was the person who accepted your first pitch. I hate to think of the pitch that I sent you, uh, but As still. I recall, it was pretty good. Uh, Tom, is, Tom is, I don't know how, I mean, Tom has reviewed a lot of pitches. Uh, Tom, tell us a little, Tom is the arts, de arts desk at NPR. Tell us a little bit. I assign and edit and produce stories for the arts desk, which provides material for all of the news magazine programs, all things considered, morning edition, weekend edition. Um, and that's what I do. I can't think of it. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. Um, pitchers, we're going to come up one by one. They'll have a couple minutes to present their pitch. Then they'll uh, have a conversation with the editor for about 10 minutes. Um, we may have time for a couple questions at the end. Um, I want to let you know that Tom and Jeremy have a plane right after. So they're going to be out the door at, six, at 3 o'clock. If anyone has a really crucial question for one of them, uh, we can consider it maybe over the hour. Uh, but I, I, we, I don't know. Uh, You're welcome so, to call or email. So our first uh, pitcher is going to be David Weinberg. Please come up. Uh, you sit down there. David Weinberg is a freelance producer based in Los Angeles. Right now you're working at Marketplace. Um, his work has been on Weekend America, Day to Day, Voice of America, the World. 
Hearing Voices, uh, last year your documentary won for the commandment, won first place in the Big Shed Verite audio competition. You produce a podcast, take it away. All right. Um, I guess I should start by and saying... this is for Jeremy Skeet. I'm sorry. Okay. This is for Jeremy. Um, so I'll just dive right into it. Um, so in the, in the 80s, this guy Clyde Casey uh, took over an abandoned gas station that was right adjacent to Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. And he started filling it with what he calls cosmic debris, junk, basically. Um, and he put out chess boards and a piano, sold coffee for a dime, and basically created this uh, community center out of nothing. And there was sort of this transformation, something odd happened, and there was this magic started happening there. So because it was next to Skid Row, you had a lot of homeless people that would hang out there because his policy was, we're open 24 hours a day, you can come hang out. But then uh, like celebrities started coming hanging out and actors, and then the mayor started showing up with city officials, and there was this really bizarre interaction between homeless people and artists and city officials that was really unique, and the place grew and grew and grew. But it was surrounded by toy stores, pretty much. And uh, what would happen was is you couldn't sleep there. But at night, um, hundreds and hundreds of homeless people would start to set up their cardboard condos adjacent to another planet. And the toy store owners started getting upset, started complaining to city council, city hall. But they all loved Casey, and they loved so much what he had done that they didn't really want to do anything. And so there's just sort of this tension that existed. And then one night, uh, a homeless guy burned down another planet, um, set fire to it. The story is that he had come to get some of his belongings. Casey would store belongings for homeless people in lockers, and uh, Casey wasn't there, so the guy couldn't get his stuff out, so he set fire to it. But uh, there are a lot of people that think that maybe one of the toy owners had paid this man to set fire to another planet. Or Yeah, so so that's, that's the story. Um, and I wanted to originally tell it through Casey's point of view, but the problem with Casey is that he's so steadfast in his beliefs and that he never really changed throughout this process. He's still trying to get another planet up and running. But in the course of working on this, I interviewed this, his good friend Richard, who was there for all of it, and his story, he, he sort of had this transformation because of the fire where he really loved what Casey did, and he sort of saw how magic a place it was. And then, he's, um, and then when it burned down, he was thinking, about, like, why didn't this work? What happened here? And, is it, um, and I think one of the bigger questions that it raises is, was the flaw in Casey? Was he just too idealistic for this to work? Or was the flaw in us, in humanity, that we can't get our shit together and just exist in a way, you know, and get along, basically? Uh, and he's very articulate about sort of his theories and why that has changed as a result of the fire. And also, the other issue, too, is that when people started showing up with means, they started giving money to the organization. And so there is some discussion of, like, well, maybe that was the problem. Maybe once money started showing up, you're introducing this whole other element. It's also it's also a story about utopias, and and it was this weird utopia in that it, you know most utopias are off in the woods, they're far away, but this was in the middle of a, this major city in downtown LA, and they like burned down. What does that mean? Right. Well, it's quite a lot there, isn't it? Uh, um, let's just try and let's let's just try and dissect it a bit and, and sort of work out. Fundamentally, what do you find the most interesting thing about this story? Well, Casey's an incredibly compelling character. The whole reason that all this happened is because he uh, he's a street performer. He lives on the streets. He's a homeless guy, essentially. He's a homeless guy who's, never, who's always had a place to stay. He's always crashing on someone's floor or something. But um, 
he was uh, doing the limbo out in front of this theater that was across the street from the gas station with big groups of people, and, and they loved so much what he did. They said you could be there every night and perform out in front of the theater. And then one night, the security guard didn't show up. And they said, Casey, while you're out here performing, can you just keep an eye on the parking lot? And he said, I will, but I have to... I'm, I have to become the avant-garde. Like if I'm going to do this, I have to be this character, and it has to be part of my performance because that's what's most important to him. So you think it's a story about Casey, the character. You think he's the central character, whether you, whether you have him or not. He's the central character. Yeah, yeah. Piece. Right, right. And is he a good talker? Yes, he is a good talker. He also uh, he wears a belt made of sounds, different things that make noises, so he right. punctuates his speech with dings right, and right, bells. Right, and, right. <laughs> and is he one of those guys, is he, is, he quite annoy, is he quite annoying? You said that he's sort of one-track mind. He's not a one-track mind in that. But can you sort of, it, when, you, when you engage in him, will he, will he just sort of repeat the same, or does he go off on one? No, 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 he's, he's a great storyteller. Right, he's from right. the South, he has that in his blood. You right. know, he grew up in Memphis, uh, and I feel like... And so you want to start, and then what do you want to do? You want to start at the... Uh, Start at the beginning in 1980s because you know this. When did the burning down happen? This is the 1985, I believe. Mid 80s was when the fire happened. Right. So basically, it's a historical story, really, isn't it? Yeah. He's right. still trying to create another planet, but it's not. But it's not happening. Yeah, and I don't know that it ever will. Right. So the basically, so the sort of thing is, so if you've got this, you've got this character who's, and it's all in the past. Um, and we'll go into the sort of the story a bit in a minute. What's the relevance today? Why should that's just whether it's a world service audience or, or, or someone sitting in Vermont. Why should they care about this bloke? Well, I mean, I think he was trying to do something that is universal, and that is to provide a, a place where people can exist peacefully together. You know, and especially in a situation like that, where you're in a major downtown area with lots of homeless people, like this is a problem we're trying to solve all the time, everywhere. This is, and Casey did it in this incredibly unique way that they wanted to replicate. After the fire, the city drove him around and said, we'll buy you a building. Like, let's keep this alive. And he was just, uh, he didn't want to do it. Right. And you mentioned, and you mentioned this friend, Richard. What's Richard's, was it Richard? Did yeah. You, what's his take on the story? Well, he, he, he's a big supporter of Casey, but I think he, I just like him as a storyteller as sort of being, I don't want to say the voice of reason, but he is, he's very close to Richard, but he also, or to Casey, but he also understands like, it's easy to get caught up in Casey's world. I mean, that's why people were hanging out there, because he was just so magnetic. But Richard has able to, like, he's been in that world, been caught up in it, but he's also take a step back and be like, you know, you know, there's, a, there's some darkness to Casey, and he's able to articulate that. And the, 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 the conspiracy theory about that it was a toy shop, obviously there were some legal implications and stuff like that, but, you know, how going, but it's quite a long way back, how do you think you could get to the bottom of that? Can it, it would be tough. I did spend some time around there, and those are there's still toy tours around there, but most of the people I talked to um, weren't around in the right, 80s. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think if you put some effort into it, you could and track down one of those old toy owners, maybe. Right. And, and the homeless people, obviously, they've moved on. Well, no, they're still around. But no, but so, but, but from the 80s, they're unlike. Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, um, that's the other great thing about the story is that uh, my friend's making a film about it, and we have a ton of archival footage, like the news footage from after the fire, and he's tracked down some of these homeless people that were around during there. So right. we also have the ability to, to get their perspective of like, right. you know, what was it? What was another planet to you? And they also, I think we should reach out to like uh, Tim Robbins and John Cusack. They were there, right. like big name actors who were a part of this and sort of, why were you here? And like, the, and the mayor's dead, but the cultural affairs commissioners are still around. So we, have, we have about two more minutes. Jeremy, okay. one thing I wonder if you could also speak to is what would, to get this, to have you accept this, what would you need? Well, I think, I think what, the thing is that, 
What I convinced, I think it's an interesting story, mm-hmm. and I think you've got some characters and stuff there. What I'm not convinced is why, why I should do this. It happened quite a long time ago. Sure. Uh, and what's the relevance to the audience today? And I think that, you know you've got to crack that one. It could be just like this is just an interesting story, um, but for me, I would need to be slightly convinced that, you know, you mentioned at a certain point it's about utopias or one what the, the person with the utopian vision should sure. get in the way. And I think you've got to be very clear about what it is. Mm-hmm. You could obviously build a lovely documentary stroke piece with getting old celebs, news footage, and, and sort of tell the story of the thing. But it's like, does it add up to anything more? And that's what I would need to be convinced. What, mm-hmm. what, you know, why should I care? And I'm not quite there yet, because it's like, there are lots of colourful characters. And then if you sort of, if you take away, what I think, what, one thing you do, if you take away the sand belt, you mm-hmm. take away the fact that he's a colourful character, have you still got a story? And so are you... Are you too, too entranced by this character who's got this sort of larger-than-life character and right. actually, actually is, is there anything behind it? And, mm. I, you know, I think that's what you require investigation. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Moose, yeah. who's your second? Uh, Muj Zaidi is coming up now. He's going to be pitching to Anna Sussman. Uh, Muj, you just recently graduated from SALT? Uh, d- uh, December. December. Yeah. Uh, he's an independent uh, radio producer, uh, freelancing for shows like Love and Radio and 99% Invisible. Can people in the back hear? Okay. Yep. Cool. Hi. Um, so my story is, a little bit, I'm a little bit nervous, but my story is about uh, Chris and Sam. They're best friends, and they really love pizza. So, uh, so much so that, (laughs) (laughs) easy, I'm done. Um, So yeah, so they really love pizza, so much so that they started uh, scamming, trying to scam free pizza. And at first their crimes were really minuscule and it didn't really amount to much, but then uh, Sam ended up going to jail. Um, And the scam, it's really complicated, but the short version was they started collecting coupons, and it was like collect 10 coupons, get a free pizza. So that was, you know, totally legal. And then it escalated to check forgery and uh, stealing people's backpacks. This was in a student campus, so they'd like steal. It got to the point where they would steal their backpacks and like use their checks to order pizza. It was all in the name of pizza. It was all in the name of pizza. Um, And friendship. Those are the two running themes. Uh, Yeah. Um, so that's kind of part of the scam. Um, let's see. And then, yeah, I guess, and then I just want to talk about, um, I don't know what I want to talk about. <laughs> uh, so one of them went to prison, you're saying? Yeah, Sam went to jail. Um, he got arrested, uh, so he was in jail because they couldn't pay bail. Um, there were two homeless outcast kids that were like, math was a math genius Sam was, a ma- Sam was a math genius, and that's how he got a scholarship to attend uh, Indiana University. Uh, and Chris was his other geeky homeless friend. Um, yeah, so it's just basically about like raising the stakes and seeing how what you could get away with. I feel like that's part of the story. And then another part is just like forming this really uh, close friendship. And where what happens next? Where does it land? <laughs> Where does it land? Um, what happens next in the story, or like what happened? Like what? Or well, is he still in jail? Uh, no, he's not in jail. This was back in uh, 1997. Was okay. when he was arrested, and um, and was that kind of it for be, their 
Pizza scam life. For their pizza scam life, yeah, that was it. That was kind of the accumulation of it. And um, what happened was uh, Sam, actually the ending was Chris ended up getting a job at a pizzeria <laughs> and uh, at Rocket's Pizzeria, a local pizza shop, uh, that they tried not to scam from because they did have some rules. They had some okay. guidelines that okay. they abided by. Um, and Sam was so cool that the manager was like, you're the coolest kid in the world. You could come into my shop and eat pizza for free any day of the week. So that was kind of their ending. So they ended up uh, in a world of pizza. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and um, it's a self-published book, but recently uh -huh. Chris wrote a book about it. The way I found out about it was he wrote a song, and I interviewed him. Um, and the song kind of tells the story in a, you know, like four minute, it's a four minute song. And then he always says like, I'm gonna write this in a book one day, but for now the song will have to do. And so it was a book, it was the song, then I interviewed him for a podcast, and now the book is finally out. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, so he goes into more detail. I think this is a very endearing story. I think it's got a lot of great components and a great setup. I'm not exactly sure, like I said, where we land mm -hmm. or what the, the final act of the beginning, middle, and end is, but I think, I, I think we could make one. Um, I'm, I'm pretty confident about that. Not 100%, but I think so. Um, I'm a little curious about when, when one went to jail, was there any tension there about debt or the kind of friendship in which one person gets the blame or anything like that? Um, it was being, like they both, because there was just such good friends, like they both felt guilty. Like yeah. Sam would be like, no, don't feel guilty, it's not your fault. Like it's. It's me, you know, I kind of lied to you and uh, a little bit. Like, I, I told you I was going to stop, yeah. and I didn't, and I, like, you know, used a check because, yeah, they agreed to stop. And then Chris would be like, well, it's also my fault. Like, I really feel bad that my friend's in jail. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think that the jail mm -hmm. could be an event that yeah. we build the story around, and it makes kind of a, a nice natural low point in which us and our listener are crestfallen and everything's gone wrong before maybe in the end they get the pizza shop job and Definitely. free pizza for life. Definitely. But um, <laughs> And the song is a, a wonderful element too. Mm -hmm. But uh, what do you feel is the takeaway? I mean, what do you want people to end with? That's or a good one of the things. Yeah. Um, I don't know. The way that Chris justifies that phase of his life, he's much older now. Mm -hmm. um, and Sam committed suicide, so unfortunately it would be oh. from the perspective of Chris, uh, unrelated. Uh, anyways, um, so yeah, with Chris, let's see. Um, for him, the takeaway from this phase of his life, I don't know if it would be part of the story, is that like, hey, I was homeless, I was down and out in America, and I was still able to survive. Like, mm -hmm. if being homeless in America, like the lowest point is to be uh, living in a van and like eating free pizza, like I'm gonna take as much financial risk as I want right now, and he, mm -hmm. you know, and he's done that, and it's kind of made him happy. Like he runs a record label and uh, plays plays shows and tours the country and tours Europe, and so that's his lesson. I don't know if if it's for the audience though. Do you? I have to ask. Do you think the suicide has a place in the story? Not in this theme, in their friendship, in their relationship, it would be a much bigger story. And I think that's kind of what I was struggling with with this pitch. It's like there's mm -hmm. so much detail, it seems like. I mean, there's an entire book, but like, what, what, do you, what do you take away from it? But for this story, I don't think the suicide is a part of it. For their friendship, mm -hmm. yes. I mean, I have to say for me, it, it suddenly gives it a lot more meaning and I'm, and I'm more, mm -hmm. more interested. Is that a terrible yeah, yeah, thing to say? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, and I, I think we could talk about ways that that might work in the story if, if Chris and you are comfortable with it. We have yeah. an episode coming up called Best Friends, 
um, <laughs> which I think it could be okay. be a nice fit for. But cool. um, Anna, you said you weren't quite sure there was sort of you know a heft enough or landed enough. Mm -hmm. How often do you accept a pitch uh, without knowing if it does have it? But like before. It's one of the hard things about producing for Snap Judgment for me and for anybody else is you kind of have to know the end um, before we accept it, which means you have to do, myself included, a lot of groundwork that might go nowhere. Um, I mean, which is true for, I think, pitching in general, but because our stories have an end and, and they're not issue or idea-based, it's a little bit harder because it kind of has to have happened already and you have to know what it is. But I thought... You know, I'm really happy to work with you and with freelancers about potential endings and figuring it out. So, did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Lou, do you have any more questions? No. I just want to say that was probably the problem with my last pitch to stop okay. judging. Yeah. <laughs> Where does it land? It's the hardest. <laughs> it's, it's my it's biggest. The hardest part. Yeah. 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 It's the hardest part for all cool. of us. But I think we can. Um, okay. Talk about and what if Moosh um, said, "You know what? I don't actually think I'm comfortable uh, in uh, talking about the suicide." Like, would you? I mean, I, I did like the story before. I knew yeah. about the suicide. Um, yeah. So I, I don't think that would be yeah. the end of the conversation. Um, I mean, I think there's, yeah. a, there's room for story about friendship that doesn't have a death in it. I think that there's. <laughs> yeah. uh, Sam and I, uh, Chris and I have talked about it a little bit, and he writes about it in his book. It seems okay. like it's something that he's willing to talk about. Okay. Just, just a, so. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, much. Great. Thank you. Next, David. David, I'm gonna play your audio though, right? Oh, you're gonna. You have text. I have text. And you I play video. my audio. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll give you the okay. kaboom. Okay. Um, David Gorin has joined us. He's gonna be pitching Tom Cole. He started it out in radio at age 15 on mm -hmm. WCRP in the Poconos. Um, he's mixed live performances at the Smithsonian. He's worked uh, as a freelance recording and post-production engineer for Pacifica, NPR in New York, Monitor Radio, Afropop Worldwide. Uh, and since 1996, David has managed post-production for Jazz at Lincoln Center. Um, and you're currently producing a documentary series about shortwave radio and a podcast feature called Shortwaveology. And that sets us up for what you're going to tell us about. Surprise, this is about shortwave radio. <laughs> um, particularly, my piece centers around um, a shortwave radio expert and writer named C.M. Stanberry. Um, just a very quick uh, background on shortwave. Um, before the internet, shortwave radio was really like the go-to portal to get out information, disinformation around the world. The signals travel far. They go across borders. So it's a natural for worldwide news and propaganda. It also offers anonymity. It's hard to trace. So if on the internet nobody knows you're a dog, on shortwave nobody knows you're a freedom fighter or a spy, or in the case of C.M. Stanberry, a teenager in the early 50s, he had cerebral palsy and uh, very limited use of his arms as a result. So he taught himself to tune his shortwave radio using his big toe. And he was so enamored of what he heard, the, you know, the, the big throbbing mess of stations, sonically, you know, an interesting sound, um, that he started cataloging everything he heard and eventually led him to being a writer for electronics magazines and also very involved in hobby clubs where, and so as a writer, he also, he typed all his articles with his big toe again, sorry. So now we're done with the toe. <laughs> the, the writing was um, primarily 
sort of of a hobbyist nature, how to hear stations, how to verify stations, because a, a hobbyist would love to get a card, something they could collect. But he sort of became obsessed with um, these stations called clandestine stations. And they were often um, stations run by all anti-government groups, and very often in combination uh, with uh, intelligence agencies. So he fixated on the station called Radio Swan, which was um, purportedly a CIA-run anti-Castro station that broadcast propaganda and operations information in advance of the Bay of Pigs. And in his writing, he tried to discern the truth of the station. Was it really from Swan Island near Honduras? Because you know, he, he heard it fading in this hour when it would be impossible. This level of detail angered his his audience. They they didn't like him bringing in sort of a, an analysis and political nature. They just want to make a big list of stations they've heard. So there was a bit of blacklist. He got thrown out of clubs for being outspoken. But he continued to write and publish and speculate about these stations. He um, eventually, in the mid seventies, released um, he wrote a book called Antimatter, a short post-apocalyptic novel, really outlandish, experimental, a sometimes raunchy mix of um, tra time-traveling technoir and sci-fi with a bit of uh, medium in the message theories thrown in. He was very big on McLuhan. He also wrote for small press, nonfiction and fiction. Um, in Antimatter, uh, you have radio, all his passion about Radio Swan and all the details that he got. E. Howard Hunt, Richard Nixon, even Gladys Knight and the Pips make an appearance. Um, like the radio spies he wrote about, Stanberry embeds himself in the book in the form of the character Orpheus, a clandestine radio operator, radio station operator, and propaganda writer for hire. I'm a soldier of fortune by temperament, a radio technician by profession, and a genius at both. Which means that any place in the world someone wants to operate a propaganda station, chances are I'll apply for the job. So when this Rhodesian thing came up at the end of 65, I signed on with a KIA, Kalahari Intelligence Agency. The money was good and so were my references. Chief Radio aboard the Voice of America's top-secret clandestine network during the Cuban Missile Crisis. If there's a buck in it, they can trust me to do the job and keep my mouth shut. I've been running all my life, ever since I took off from the Henley Institute for Homeless Boys, with its gray dormitories and clockwork routine, running to prove I belong loose on this earth, that I'm a man that I can do anything any other man can do, and do it better. I'm a soldier. Oop, there you go. Um, so why is it important? Why do we care? I've been solving for why all weekend. <laughs> um, well, he synthesized the murky world of shortwave radio into fiction and um, spotlighted the tendency of governments to deceive. He was very much um, a lover of uh, fiction by Vonnegut and Pynchon, who talked about the secret conspiracy, things that are not in front of us. He, um, to his, the uh, promo copy, which I presume he wrote on his book, um, Antimatter is a modular exploration of the 20th century 
Limbo, mock-up versions of Long Island, Canada, Portugal, and Southern Africa serve as the setting for Stanbury's Space Age Circus. The camp meeting on the moon is on the moon, and our itinerant evangelist, Reverend Clud, sounds a lot like Adolf Hitler or Nixon or McLuhan or Billy Graham, depending upon the module you happen to plug in. So I think he was teasing out what he saw coming in media. He David, can we hear a little bit from Tom, just because we're, we're almost... Yeah, I'm done. We're, we're half That's through it. Our he so died he, in 86. That was my first question. <laughs> <laughs> so he's no longer with us. He's no longer with us. The guy doing the reading is like a Stanbury-like guy. Um, I do um, have someone who wrote for one of his newsletters when he was a kid, an academic who's, who's been doing research on Stanbury as well. Does any audio exist of him? I have been looking. I have not found it yet. There are some fringe things. There, he was so reviled in some quarters that there was a pirate radio station called Radio Free Stanbury. I've not found audio yet, but I do have uh, instances of loggings of it from 1980 where someone can talk about hearing it. Um, a lot of the sound would come from dramatizing uh, portions of his writing. I was going to use shortwave announcers, sort of iconic golden voices from that era. There's also a sister, a nephew, a neighbor who could bring. Uh, there was a FOIA search done on him. Didn't reveal anything, but sometimes you have to do it more than once. Maybe an intelligence person. Radio Swan, I think I can find, and other clandestines and stuff. I mean, I think it's a fascinating story. I, interestingly, the book is the least interesting thing for me. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the 50th anniversary of the Bay of Pigs is coming up, so that would be a perfect... I mean, again, in terms of stories and what I have to do, I mean, I, I, I liked all three stories that we've heard so far. My biggest challenge is, okay, how do I sell this to a show producer? Can you explain uh, what you actually have to do? Pardon? Can you explain what you actually have to do when you say, how do I show this? Like, what do you have to do? Basically, I can do one of two things. I can bring a story in, you know, work with a reporter, edit it, finish it, and say, here it is. Love it. Um, and sometimes they do. Sometimes, um, you know, if there's a little bit of a question, I'll go to a show that I think might be receptive to it. I mean, it's all, my father was a furniture salesman. I swore I'd never do this. But <laughs> it's basically what, what I do is I'm a salesman. Um, and, you know, try to present the story. I mean, in other words, you pitch to me, I pitch to them. Um, and so Tom is a pitcher within NPR. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I would sort of have to have some stuff to work with. And the anniversary of the Bay of Pigs would be a perfect peg. You know, here was this guy who, who, I mean, it would be a great sidebar story for it because he unearthed this thing that was supposed to be this thing and he tracked it, but now he's dead, so we can't talk to him. Um, you know, I, 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 if, if I were going to take it and if we had the time, but I think the anniversary is coming up, um, fairly soon, you know, I would pitch it as a profile of him, of who he was, of what he overcame, what his interests were, what he did. You know, because one of the things, you know, with a story like this that doesn't really have a current peg except for, you know, the Bay of Pigs thing is, a is couple more minutes. you make people care about the person, and here's right. a person that we can care about. Right. I mean, you know, Definitely. easily, Definitely. easily. 
Um, I mean, shortwave is fascinating. Shortwave is still very pertinent. During Katrina, when everything went out, shortwave was what people relied on to get information around. You're singing my song. Um, <laughs> Tom, what more would you need from David, do you think? What more would I need? See, I was, I was going to voice a lot of his writings about mm -hmm. Swan. He wrote tons and tons ab about it, mm -hmm. um, you know, by actors or... I think that would be an element of it. I mean, I think we would want to sort of dig into that world and try to find some of the people that were involved. I mean, you that know, with clandestine stations. I mean, we did a whole story on on this uh, two or three CD set called The Conet Project that came out a while ago that was all sort of these little blips and bleeps. I did a lost and found sound piece on the spy did stations. You? Yeah, so, so in two thousand. I mean, yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff, and and it's sort of just a little window into a world that nobody really knows about. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. Um, would I take it now as a general as a general feature? I mean, if this conference had happened a month ago, I'd say let's do it. Let's get it done by you know the anniversary when of the is Bay the anniversary? of Pigs. Someone look at this. Someone looked like it up already. Mid October, <laughs> I think. So I mean, it's yeah, like right around tight. the corner. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm at T Cole at NPR.org. Shoot okay. me an email and let's talk. We'll talk. Thank All you. Right. Thank All right. you. Elise, you're going to come up. Uh, what is the best way to reach you guys when they pitch? Do you think, should everyone email you? When is, uh, is a phone call ever allowed? Yeah. Sure. Follow up no. a phone call. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd just say an email. One, one paragraph is all I need. Email is best. Okay. Yeah, and one, yeah, shorter is better. Shorter is better. And then if it intrigues you, they go back. You don't, you're never going to read a, a three, four page email. Let's be honest. Um, Elise Peppel is going to be pitching Jeremy Skeet. You say that you grew up in a gigantic Catholic family in Baltimore. Uh, you went to Brooklyn uh, after college. Then you ended up in Alaska, and you ended up as a park ranger, which was both unexpected. Uh, now you are living in a small town off the road system in Alaska, producing a radio show dedicated to true stories around a theme. You just started SALT. So you've left Alaska temporarily, mm -hmm. and you co-produced some live storytelling events in Alaska. What is this unnamed town, too? It's Sitka, Sitka. Alaska. Yeah. Okay, welcome. Please tell Thanks. us. Thanks. I've never pitched before. This is Adam, exciting. Well, you know, yeah. no sure, one knows worry about first. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's me. So I'm going to show you the Alaska that you wouldn't see as a tourist. And what that looks like in this Alaska, when you decide to stay, the phone book is taken out. And by phone book, I mean the phone page, because the town is so small that everybody's phone number exists on one sheet of paper. And with that piece of paper, the first thing that happens is that someone in the town tries to find you a mate, as if they didn't already know the 400 people who they live with. They go down the list of 400 people. In this Alaska, people say the odds are good, but the goods are odd. But in reality, <laughs> the odds aren't good and the goods are odd. <laughs> in this Alaska, it actually literally rains a biblical 40 days and 40 nights. And what happens when it rains a biblical 40 days and 40 nights is that the residents only talk about leaving. But what's strange is that they don't. They stay. And they deal with these universal issues. Should I stay? Should I go? How do you find love? 
how do you not find love? But they do it in this very unique setting, which is a town of 400 people that literally has no way in and no way out. I want to tell you the story of the other AK. I want to tell you the story of this town, Gus Davis, through the residents who are living out these themes. The newcomer who has just decided to stay the winter and is being taken through the not-so-remarkable phone list. The single woman who cannot find a partner because she's the only lesbian in the entire town. <laughs> the life coach who is the coffee shop woman who can tell you what the manual is on how you should live there. And the thing that's happening to this town is that it's changing. The tension is that for the first time there's now a dock and that for the first time, you can get out. And that for the first time, tourists can show up four times a week. I just stop suddenly. <laughs> Pregnant pause. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is, this is a story st told through this one town and touching on these themes. And I guess, so the question about why do we care? So there's this um, fascination with Alaska. Some people care about that. Uh, and I would say the other piece is that there are these universal questions about, you know, do we stay or do, do we go? And in this case, that question is dramatic. You literally, if you want to leave, maybe can't because you can't fly out. You have to take a six-seater airplane and the weather may be bad, so you may change your mind in the six days before the weather changes. Pretty good first pitch, don't you? <laughs> So I, I sort of think there's, um, there's this fascination, we all have a fascination with places, small places, because I think it's because they're contained fundamentally. You know, the, 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 you know, you talk about universal things and they happen in Chicago, they happen in London about should I stay or should I go or, or, or finding a life partner. I was less interested in finding a life partner because I just sort of think, uh, but I'm quite interested in should I stay or should I go because I sort of think it's, it's universal, it's about migration, you know, it applies to everybody, and it's sort of, and you get a sense that, well, the people left behind probably should have gone, or, you know, what's keeping them there? There's something keeping them there. And so I think the changing bit you could get to later. So I would explore the should I, personally, I think the interesting should I stay or should I go, uh, you know, we're coming into winter, so I think that's, you know, you've got the perfect sort of backing. What sort of, how are you going to do it? Does anybody, have you spoken to anybody who wants to go? Every day. But do they, but do they really want to go? Yes. And why don't they go? Well, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and the answer is? Well, yeah, so the answer is, it's complicated. The answer is, uh, it's convenient to talk about all the problems, but in reality, there's something very special about this town. And then as soon as they go, the first thing they do is bitch about what it's like down south and talk about how there's too many cars and it's impersonal. Um, so, so yeah, I would say why a lot of people don't go is they don't know how. So how are you gonna tell that story? Is there anybody who doesn't wanna go? Yes. And why do they not wanna go? For exactly the same reasons. Yeah, uh, forgive the verb that's gonna sound very poetic, but for example, Greg Strevler is 70 years old. He built his house out of hand tools and he married that place 50 years ago. 
and he won't leave. So I sort of think what you, I think the difficulty is sort of getting to some, it's sort of getting to something beyond like them whinging. Uh, did you mm-hmm. have that? You know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's, a, it's cold out there. I want to go. Well, you know, sort of say, it's sort of like, well, just go then. You know, which is <laughs> right. like, stop whinging about it. And, and like, we all don't like cars. So you haven't quite got it. And then I, so I haven't quite heard the characters. Mm-hmm. And I sort of think, you, you know, this is the sort of thing where you really, really have to go into depth with one or two people. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to say, I want to go. You have to really sort of deep down into their psyche about... What is keeping them there? Is it is it to do with the location, and and sort of make it? I'd say you wanted to, you wanted to be a positive. You don't want this thing to sort of like moaning while we're there. So you really work it out. Is it because they're trapped there? Is it because you know the you know the, there's no opportunities? Or so really trying to work out what makes them, because basically this this place what it makes of them. So I sort of think it's very personal. Would you narrate it? I think I would, but I guess that's that's something Emily and I talked about, kind of how how to do the narrating. And um, at the moment, I would say I would narrate it. Well, I think you know, if you're the narrator, you're the person who, as it were, can take us there. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got no idea what it looks like. I imagine it's for me, it's hell on earth. You know, <laughs> uh, and so it's up to you. To, you know, you ended up there. You know, why did you end up there? And so I think up for you, it's you. That's your skill as the narrator to try and sort of get to the bottom of this place. So I arrived there. So I would recommend, I wouldn't, you know, I don't think it would work, it would, might work as a snap judgment, but it's a bit different. I want you to help me understand this place and understand these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's about it. And then, then the, 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 I can't work out whether the, the fact that now tourists come or not is interesting. Um, that was my be- favorite part. What? That was my favorite part. Does it? Uh-huh. See, for me, it's like, oh, God, here we go again. It's the encroachment of modern life. <laughs> da 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 And in a way, it's like, I've heard it all before. So I sort of think, because it's like, oh, they're going to get ruined. Well, they're ruined anyway because they're moaning about it. It's like, so I can't, <laughs> so I can't work out about that changing thing, you know, unless something has happened. There's obviously a bit of tension there, and then obviously the town's character might change, but then... Are you really going to get to that, or are they just going to moan about them? Mm. You know. So I just sort of think it's intriguing. It's really intriguing. I thought you, you, you obviously you've thought about it well, and you've really sort of sold it to me. But I sort of th- I'm not quite. I, I, I'm sort of I, I I can hear it, and I, there's something there, but I sort of think this is where I think the sort of pitch process is. That's done enough to intrigue me. And so then what I do is have conversations. And you start having conversations, you work it through, and you work it through, and you work it through, and eventually you come to something. And then when they're making it, you find it's something else altogether. <laughs> you know, and then, and then in the edit, it becomes something else. But you know, the, the pitch, all you're trying to do is intrigue people. You know, you're just trying, you know, one paragraph. And so you did enough. So let's continue the conversation. Yeah, Great. very good. Yeah. When do you start talking about money? <laughs> never, never. Uh, well, the, the BBC is quite, uh, you know, the BBC has a sort of flat rate as for a half hour dock of between five and six thousand pounds, which is what, eight thousand dollars? Which is, uh, well, I don't know if it's a lot or not, but it's, um, uh, it's good, but you know, it's good, but quite often uh, it involves travel, you know, so that's all up. Uh, and my view is always uh, that if something's going to cost more, it's going to cost more, and we'll pay for it. You know, because some things you get much cheaper. Uh, and so that's a sort of... So that... Uh, 
yeah, so that's the sort of... I'll talk about money whenever you want. But it's sort of... In the, it's sort of you get the commission, then you start talking about money. But, if, you know, if you wanted to fly around the world and it was a big project, you, you, I'd just go and ask for someone for more money. Yeah, and see if I get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anna, do you have a... There's like a... How does money work at Snap Judgment? Um, so th- we don't start talking about it until we've accepted a piece. Um, and we have a graduated scale based on how many stories you've done for us, which begins at 85 a minute and tops out at 105 a minute. Uh, one of the benefits is that our t- stories tend to go long. We rarely have a story under eight minutes. Um, and one of the things I try to be really clear about is that stories get killed pretty frequently, especially if it's your first time working with us. Um, so there's a $250 kill fee. Uh, it can happen at any time in the process. There's, there's just no guarantees. Um, but I, I, I try to be your advocate as much as I can. And Tom, when does money? Generally the same when the story is accepted. You know, we talk about the level. NPR used to pay by the minute. We don't pay by the minute anymore. It's based on the level of the experience of the reporter and the sort of level of the difficulty of the story. You know, short, quick round turnaround news stories are at a lower level, longer, more highly produced stories that involve travel and whatever. Um, Pay more. There's one thing I just think which makes... It uneconomical is if you spend too much time investigating the story. Okay, if you if you want to do it and you're interested, fine. You know, pitch it, see if it gets accepted, and then let someone else pay for your work. You know, if if you do two three weeks of research and then it doesn't get accepted, well, you, that's money out of your pocket. You know, the sort of I think you should see the money as the sort of the research and the the pitch is initially the first thing. Obviously, you can do a bit of inve- uh, research, but you don't have to become the world's expert on the topic. Great. Uh, let's have another pitch. Thank you, Elise. Uh, Mahi. Mahi. Uh, Mahi Palanisami. Yes. Is going to be pitching to Tom. Uh, Mahi, you are an independent radio and video producer based in Minneapolis uh, with about seven years of experience. Also a singer, mechanical engineer, and puppeteer. <laughs> uh, so go for it. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Okay, so I'm going to read this pitch. I just wrote it out. Okay, so on, on October 20th, local Kathak dancers will perform in Minneapolis for the Indian Hindu Festival of Diwali. Kathak is a classical dance form that blends Muslim and Hindu movements. So the story will feature dancers and the dance teacher. Okay, so I just did a three-sentence pitch. Do you want me to go more into the characters? Give me a little more. Sure. Okay. So I actually did the story for a community radio station. So I have this interview with Rita. Rita's the dance teacher. Um, so she uh, is passionate about Katak, and she, she, I wove the story together through her experience as a dancer in India who danced because she had rickets, so it was a cure for her rickets. Um, she got married, came to the country. Um, she wanted to study more. Um, her mother-in-law let her, and then so she went back and forth, and then she started a school. And, um, and I wove it together with a story of, of the Mughal Empire. So the Mughal Empire is kind of the opposite story of today, where they were Muslims, and they were conquering the world. One of the differences that they did at that time that we didn't do of now as we go <laughs> and take resources is that when they took resources, they also loved the arts and made a plan to take the arts. And one of them that they took was Kathak in India. And they took it and they blended it with their Muslim traditions. So the Kathak that, that we dance, I dance it, is a blending of, that, of those two cultures. So that was my big thing with this story was, wow, why, why don't we do that now? Well, all we do is go take stuff and, and leave, you know? <laughs> but they were, so, but yeah, so that's, is that enough? Do you want more? A little more. Okay, 
uh, in the <laughs> let me keep going. <laughs> the dancers. Um, there are two groups of us. Last week, I was high fived by a group of high, um, middle schoolers. They asked me if I was born in India or the U.S. And I said I was born in the U.S. And they were like, "Yeah, you're one of us," um, because there are two groups of us. There are the people that are straight from India, and Pakistan. And, and so they're my age and they dance, and then there are people like me who are actually much younger than me, and then we dance also. So there are these two um, groups within the, that have different um, connections with the dance. And, um, and then Ridanti will often choreograph pieces that actually speak out against uh, the violence that's happening in the Middle East right now, along with traditional pieces that we do. How often, first, is there a substantial community of South Asians in Minneapolis? In many, it's growing. I mean, I would, I would say so. I don't have the numbers on me. From sort of a news magazine perspective, mm -hmm. is this a way of bringing the two communities together in some way, in the way in which the arts were fused out of two separate religions? Is this a way in which the two communities, Hindu and Muslim, in Minneapolis? Yeah. Wow, I don't know. I mean, we don't, I don't, I haven't, I don't know if we have Muslim dancers. It could be. I mean, a lot of East Africans show up. We have a huge refugee East African Muslim population. So they, show, they come to shows. So I don't, but that They maybe. don't perform in the company? No. Do the people who dance know its history as well as you do? We, part, some people do, some people don't. Okay. I think for... For our purposes at NPR, there would sort of have to be a broader story, some kind of broader meaning out of it about cultural interaction, about I'm looking for something more than just this happens and people dance this interesting dance um, that has, I mean, you know, I love history stuff. It's one of the reasons I like David's pitch because, you know, you, you go back in time or the, another planet, you know, it, 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 it tells you about something that is in many ways, I mean, past is prologue. Um, but I, I think for, you know, NPR News Magazine purposes, we need a little bit more there, there. In other words, what's the larger story? What's, what's the meaning of all of this other than it happens? So the war part isn't enough. <laughs> I mean, the way that strat the strategies that they had at that time and the, and the different powers of that time is they're kind of the opposite of now. I mean, it's interesting then, sure. I mean, and that's good history, but how does that play out now, in other words, through the performances? Uh, you know, what, 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 what do people get out of both performing this, about understanding something of both cultures? What do audiences get out of seeing this work performed? That's, that's kind of what I would be looking for in a story like that. So maybe I'll do more research. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, one of the things that Jeremy said that, that I don't disagree with, but at the same time, you know, when, when you approach me with a pitch, I want you to be able to answer all the questions that I have. Mm -hmm. And so that involves spending some time knowing the story, learning the story, you know. So if, if you know, if I ask you, what's the Muslim population of Minneapolis? What's the Hindu population of Minneapolis? You know, what's the 
I, I, I want to hear from you that you have those answers because that gives me confidence that you will then know the story and know how to approach it. From that point of view, yeah. that makes sense. Okay, Tom, how often do you feel like you're, you were, uh, that you're helping the person find the, the, not the pitch, but the reason that you can air it now? Um, all the time. Yeah. Um, you're very good at that. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's part of getting it on the air because, you know, stories, almost, almost any story, I think, for me, can be a good story. It's just a matter of how do I get it from being a good story that's happening someplace to getting it on NPR. And that's always the challenge. Um, and trying to just sort of refine that and, and figuring out a way of looking for broader themes, looking for characters, looking for some kind of story that you can tell throughout the course of a piece. Um, yeah, no, I do that all the time. Mm. Um, before we go on to our last uh, pitch, do people have questions for Tom and Jeremy specifically because they are going to be running for an airplane? I mean. Is the half-hour documentary the only place at the BBC World Service has windows for American producers to pitch pieces, or are there other spots as well? Uh, there are other spots. I, th the, the, have the, I think one of the best ways to get in, especially if you're new, is to um, go for daily shows. Because daily shows almost have a they have a huge appetite. You know, they need you know especially. Uh, so there's a show called Outlook which is a sort of human interest show on the World Service. Have a listen to it. Uh, they're always after stories um, from around the world. Uh, it's little four or five minute stories. And sort of also obviously once, you, once you're known by them, they begin to trust you and you, you sort of build up much more. Um, there's another program called Witness, which is, um, which is quite a lot of American producers do do stuff for, which is a sort of, it's a nine minute history uh, a program, which is just from, takes one event uh, and it's told through one person's eyes. So it, it's sort of, um, it's a very nice program, and it's, it's quite easy to do. Um, so, for example, you know, if, if, with your story, if you had the person was still alive, you could tell that story just as a little nine-minute nugget. It's obviously got more. So those are, the two, those are the two that come to mind. The new, the new stories are harder to break into because you sort of, um, unless you happen to work for, you know, a public radio station that we, we've got sort of links with. Um, but those are the two programs I'd have a look at. Oh, and then, Jeremy, do, do we pitch you for all of these programs? Or? Well, I think, well, I'll, I'll leave my card here, um, and it's jeremy.skeet at bbc.co.uk. I think what I'll do, if you just pitch me, I'll have a, you know, I'll just forward it to the editor. I think that's the easiest thing. Because um, otherwise they won't know who you are, and... Uh, it might help if I do it. It might not, but it might. <laughs> <laughs> do you, did you have a question ne right next door? Yeah, oh, that was your question? Okay, any other questions? Yeah. Uh, do any of you have actually commissioning rounds at certain times of the year, or are you just open to ideas at any time? All the time. I mean, you know, I work for the news programs. It's seven days a week. Yeah, I, I sort of run a couple of strands, so we're always looking at... I, I, I sort of the commissioning rounds I only like doing if there's a particular moment, sort of like an anniversary that I want all the ideas at once. Otherwise, at just any time. Any other question? All the time. All the time. Okay, let's go on. Barton, thank you, Mahi. Uh, Barton Girdwood is an independent producer uh, living in Bloomington, 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 Indiana. 
Uh, you're at SALT this fall. Uh, you helped found the College Public Radio Project, American Student Radio, and uh, working on a double major in gender studies and a self-created degree in public memory. Yeah? That's correct. Okay. <laughs> Glad you got it all in there. Hi, Anna. Hey, Barton. I have a story for you. Excellent. I love stories. <laughs> I'll go ahead and start off by letting you know this is a story about going there and then coming back again. Um, in downtown Indianapolis, there is a 14-year-old boy who's beginning to understand that he is transgender, and he's just been caught by his mother and his father having a wonderful romping session with his best friend, and that's not okay with them. Now he has to find a new place to live. Um, but luckily, he has other friends that have also been kicked out of their homes that are also trying to find a new family, um, and they've tapped into what is known as the ballroom community, which is a network of black and Latino um, queer people across the United States that have built an entirely new gender system that um, builds an entirely new family network um, and is teaching young people how to survive as young queer people. Um, so this back to this boy in Indianapolis. Um, so they're joining this family. And when they join this family, um, they're required to choose a new gender. Um, and so that's their second choice. They've chosen to leave their blood family Choosing, now they're choosing a new gender, and they're choosing a new family. Um, and this new family is all about support um, and about um, helping these children survive on the streets, as I said. And they do this by having performances in which houses come together and compete. And it's a competition of gender. <laughs> it's rather intense. And um, so this young, this young boy who's deciding their own gender um, must perform in front of all these houses um, that they can live between gender, that they can both be a girl and a boy. Um, so they have their gender at home, but they have their gender that they have to live on the street as well. So that when they go to school on Monday, they don't have to worry about get, being assaulted, being beat up, um, being hurt by their classmates. They perform both of these on stage? Um, no, they choose, they choose the gender that they are not living. So if at home I'm a girl, on stage I'm a boy. And, and in the ballroom, are there only two genders? No, there are six genders in the ballroom community. And so when you're joining this house, you're choosing one gender to live in that. Um, one of the six. One of the six, okay. yeah. And then when you go on stage, you're trying to prove to people that you can pass as something that people on the outside would recognize. Um, yeah. So the story that I'm interested in telling is about a person that's leaving their blood family, moving into a new family, and the complications of moving into a new family, and then also the complications of choosing an entirely new identity while choosing an entirely new family, but then having to go back to the world that you left in the first place. There's a, a lot there. There's a, a lot. lot of cool. I need some time. <laughs> yeah. Maybe like 10 minutes. <laughs> um, there's a lot of great stuff there, I think. Um, you know, it's the story of a journey, which works well for our format. Um, like you said, you start one place and end someplace new. Uh, you st something you mentioned is that there's a lot of choices, and that helps a lot with our stories, is for there to be decision, decision points in which someone is changing their I mean, snap judgment, right? Someone is changing their future, um, and what are the implications of that? And what a, a good way to set up a story, I find, is about um, expectations before we make the decision and what those expectations look like afterwards, as in where we come. It's not what it's not what this fourteen year old thought it was going to be at all, and they're completely in a new place, or it's exactly what they wanted, or usually somewhere in between. Um, a lot's going to depend on the, the storyteller, right? That's every story, but I think maybe particularly first person stories because we can't do a lot to help um, a bad storyteller because it's a first person story. Anna, would you ask for tape? 
before. Well, I mean, when you said a lot's going to depend on the storyteller, would right. you say, can I, I mean, before you accepted a pitch? Yeah, I would, I, I mean, I would ask you, are they a good, are they a good storyteller? And um, if you're on the fence, then I, I think we would listen to some tape together to say, yeah. Oh, that's one question I do have for you. Um, what makes somewhat a compelling character, especially in this situation, because it's a really heavy story, do you want someone mm -hmm. that can make you laugh? Or someone that... I love someone who can make me laugh. Yeah, that's great. Um, maybe it's easier for me to answer in what's not a good character or a good storyteller. Um, it's hard. I think maybe this is a problem of yours. Um, when someone is such a believer in their calling or their cause that there's no room for doubt or complexity. This happens a lot when, when I interview evangelicals or something. Every answer is just, well, God was holding me in his hand and it's God's will. And it's, it's hard to enter and, and be relatable to a lot of folks if there's no kind of complexity in their um, worldview. Can I ask a question? In, uh, in England, there's quite a lot of child protection laws, and this kid is obviously 14, mm -hmm. and I think there's sort of, there's some huge ethical questions about whether he's mm -hmm. mature enough to, to tell this story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, he might be, he might not, you know, and then sort of, in England, you need par parental approval. We would too. Um, which you might not get. Yeah, and we would have to talk a lot about protecting their identity and making sure that they knew what they were getting into on a national show. Yeah, but so, Would it be easier then to find someone that's actually experiencing this today right now or someone that's been in these families for a long time that's experienced this in past tense? Whoever's a better storyteller, <laughs> I think. Um, I mean, it could, work, it could work well either way. Um, whoever, I mean, in, if you're researching and trying to find the person, you know, it's who you have a connection with that you think is going to be comfortable enough in their own skin to tell it but still be a complicated character. Does that help? It does help, okay. yeah. Um, and in terms of, like, scenes, are you expecting someone that is, like, do you want, like, what is a scene with Snap Judgment, I guess? Um, I mean, most of our stories are straight interview um, that we then score and sound effect. Um, so they're telling scenes from memory and describing them in as much detail as possible. Um, but we're not against you getting verite in the field of them with their new family or going back to their old family to do some kind of confronting or... or discussion. I think all of those would be good scenes. Or just, I mean, this is such a complicated story. I think there's a lot of scenes. I mean, this whole thing that you mentioned about having to to learn to pass in one society and then also to accept a new identity in, in the other society, I think there's a lot of scenes there. That could be cool. <laughs> and this whole performance thing, of course, sounds right. very radio-friendly. Yeah. How much do you listen to tape before you accept a piece? It does that... For me, almost never. Yeah. I mean, it depends. You know, it's it's once once we're in process, I'll go through tape yeah. with a reporter and, and listen to you know possible actualities, possible scene sound, that sort of thing. Is it? But is a tape am, is a tape helpful for a pitch? Well, I still think the Real America's thing that I spoke about. There was one pitch about um, a dying couple, uh, and it was all about this party that had happened in the past. It was about a bon voyage party. And it was obviously totally dependent on the quality of tape. So I just said, look, can you put together 10 minutes of rough tape? Just to, one, check that it was recorded well, and two, it was like, and it was good quality, so we went with it. Because um, that was entirely dependent on the tape, but I think that that's... Uh -huh. Tape often hurts pitches at Snap Judgment, actually. <laughs> um, I think people tend to not put a lot of thought into it, because they think, oh, it's just a clip, or I'm not sending you a completed piece, and so they send us raw tape that doesn't sound good, and it turns us off. We think, well, the... That doesn't sound very good, so um, it might hurt you. <laughs> okay. Good. Does anyone have any questions? 
Yeah. So for Snap Judgment, you do stage performance. Yes. Would you ever think about this as one of those stories, since there's performance involved? Well, probably not. The kind of performance we do, it's very specific. It's somebody telling a first-person story of something that happened to them, um, and it's pretty heavily edited. And um, it doesn't sound like the pitch that, that I'm hearing from you. If there was someone from this community who came to us with that kind of story that they wanted us to help them edit and put on the air. Um, if it fit the guidelines, I think that would definitely be an option. But um, I'm sorry, I, I wasn't thinking yeah. of them as a storyteller, but as somebody performing alongside the story, <coughs> actually doing the performance, the competition style performance. I mean, I, I think that could be a scene in the story. Is that what you're asking? Yes, I think that'd be a great scene in the story. Yeah. Yeah, Mike. Um, can, can you stand up? Can you pitch a story? So yesterday for This American Life, um, they were saying that they prefer long pitches because they're such a story-based show and that they'd rather know the story inside and out for the pitch. Like, How long of a pitch do you want for stories for Snap Judgment? I want a paragraph at the top and then, if, and then a bit more information. But that paragraph will decide whether I'm going to read the rest. Yeah, it's quite brutal. The pitch should almost be like a, a host introduction. In other words, when, when a host is reading the intro to a piece, it basically lays out, you know, what to expect. And so think of, you know, pitches in those terms. I, like, um, like I believe Julie said yesterday from This American Life, I do the same thing. I take the pitches that I think have uh, a prayer and I bring them to the group and I fight for them there. And if I don't have an end in that pitch, then I can't even bring it to them. So so tell me the end in the pitch, where it lands. Uh, but if you don't, and I like it, I'll write back to you and say, what's the end? Yeah. Sue asked me to introduce myself, relevant to this point. I'm Paul Ingalls, and I'm the NPR liaison to independent producers. And the role that I play often is this step they're talking about right now, because what we have here is a luxury to be able to talk for 10 minutes you know, with the editor. The first step is, is this short pitch that uh, Tom and Jeremy were describing. So uh, I'm available as a resource to send your pitch to me first to help kind of shape that pitch so that it has the best chance of getting the editor's attention, first of all. And I'm not going to make editorial judgments, but I'm going to help get you to the right person, a regional editor, arts editor, whoever at NPR, or uh, suggest other public radio outlets that you might not have thought of. So I'm uh, Paul at paulingles.com, and uh, some of you have already worked with on that, so uh, just bear that in mind. Yeah. How do you spell your last name? I-N-G-L-E-S. Any more questions? Yeah. Just a quick question for Jeremy. I always hear the World Service is like this very fast pace news distribution. I love it for that reason. I mean, I, I really enjoy it. But um, I would be curious to know just what your standard runtime is or when you, um, you know, do commission a piece that would air there. Is there an average runtime? They seem to be very short. Well, the, in the news programs, the, the longest piece is probably five minutes. But then there are documentaries which are 22 and a half minutes. And then within programs, you know, I mentioned Outlook, which I think is an 18-minute program. It will either have three, two, or one-item piece. You know, so um, I sort of think there's the flexibility, but the, the news pieces are, are very short. Um, but there is room, especially at the weekends, obviously, when the listening habits are different, to do longer stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I'm going to send Tom and Jeremy to their flights. <laughs> um, let's thank you. Tom Cole, Jeremy Skeet. Um, does, does, anyone, does anyone have any more questions uh, for uh, Anna? Anna will solve all our pitching okay. problems uh, now. Um, do, do people have more questions? Go for it. Yeah. We do. Um, I have a pitch list, which has individual emails as well. The air list is on there, so if you're on air, um, then you get it. And um, if you want, just if you're not an air member and you want to be on it independently, just send me an email, pitches at snapjudgment.org, and say you want me to put you on there, and um, and I'll write you back and say I have put you on there. And if I if you don't get that confirmation email, hit me up again, and I'll make sure it happens. Anything else? No. Um, well, I want to thank again uh, the folks at Third Coast, Julie and Johanna, Sue Shart and Aaron Mishkin at AIR. Um, and of course, mainly we want to thank our pitchers and Anna. Let's give a big round to Barton, Mahi, David, and